I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi. This is episode 398 for August 23rd, 2012. Today's guest is Nashville saxophonist Rasan Barber. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel for the show's logo and Rob Grundell for the Jazz or Bust logo. I'm still in New York City, but the tour, the Jazz or Bust tour, resumes very, very soon in uh, less than 10 days, which I'm sure makes my sister happy because I'm staying with her at the moment. I'll be, uh, you can maybe just pick up her shouts of joy in the back of this recording. I'll be uh, heading to Detroit on Labor Day weekend for the Detroit Jazz Fest and then slowly west from there through a lot of places in the Midwest. In fact, it looks right now like I'll be spending as much time in Iowa as I spent in New Orleans. And if someone had told me a year ago that that would be true, I would have laughed. But uh, I'm excited. I've never been to Iowa. And, of course, there's lots of cool stuff to see there, I'm sure. I just don't know what any of it is, except uh, I know Bix is from there. That's all I know. Bix Beiderbeck. <laughs> in case you thought it might be another Bix. Bix, Bix Johnson. Tight end for the Carolina Panthers. Is it the, Are the Carolina Panthers actually – is that the name of the football team from Carolina? Yeah. Wow. Shocking. That was good. That was good. I'm proud of myself. Uh, what else do I need to tell you? So, oh, anyway, so since the tour is starting, if you would like to support it, please go to thejazzsession.com slash tour. You can make a one-time donation there and get the thank you gifts that come along with that. Uh, there are all kinds of things you can do. You can make a donation. You can suggest a place for me to stay or to read poetry or someone to interview. You can even buy a book for my Kindle. There's a little list you can click on there, and uh, a lot of people did that in the first part of the tour, which was great because I didn't have to spend any of my food money on books, and I always had something to read, which was awesome. If you want to support the show in a more long-term fashion, you can become a member. Go to thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member there. You can either make a monthly payment or a yearly payment, and the monthly payments start as low as 10 bucks. the yearly payments at $110 a year. You probably have noticed over the years that there are two people's names, there used to be three, right at the beginning of each show. Those are the people who sponsor the show at the highest level, either $50 a month or $500 a year. For many of you, that may seem like a stretch, but if it does not seem like a stretch, it makes a huge difference to me. So if you can become a named sponsor to the show, I could really use uh, a few more. And you can do that again at thejazzsession.com slash join. To keep up with what I'm doing, particularly when I'm on the tour, there's a few easy things to do. One is to join the mailing list, as many, many other people have done. That's at thejazzsession.com. Just click on mailing list up at the top. If you use Twitter, you can follow me at Jason D. Crane, D as in David. And, of course, you can subscribe to The Jazz Session in iTunes or using an RSS reader. And you can also subscribe using an RSS reader to jasoncrane.org, which is the blog where I post my tour diaries. I wrote something like 45,000 words in the first part of the tour, and the second part of the tour 
will likely be even longer. So even more verbose. That's my pledge to you. This is the, what is it, maybe the fifth? I think the fifth of six shows recorded in Nashville. This one with saxophonist Rasan Barber, recorded in the home of saxophonist Evan Cobb, who is on the next show. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, I saved my host for last, as the old saying goes. So Rasan Barber has an album uh, that got a lot of uh, critical acclaim and uh, lots of airplay across the country called Everyday Magic. And we'll hear something from that, followed by my interview with Rasan Barber. guest is Rasan Barber, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So I uh, I first heard of you before I actually even knew that you were based in Nashville, because I, I got the album Everyday Magic and uh, and checked it out and really dug it, and people were talking about you a lot. And then I didn't really actually make the connection that you lived in one of the towns I was going to, but luckily somebody made it for me. So I'm very <laughs> glad to have you on the show. And part of the reason that I'm out doing this tour is to find out how folks are making lives kind of outside New York, which is where, I mean, I've done hundreds of interviews in New York, and I felt like things were getting a little narrow, and there are people making great music everywhere, sure. and still being very connected. So I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about how you've built a life for yourself in music, and still maintained your base here in Nashville? Absolutely. And and I, I spent quite a bit of time in New York. I did my master's in Manhattan School of Music up sure. there, and um, had a blast there, but I think uh, for a number of reasons, was just extremely uh, passionate about coming back to what is my hometown i'm a very very proud native nashvillian born and raised and so um i feel that i've benefited so much from growing up here and the great musicianship of an across a number of genres which i think sets nashville apart from really uh every other city that i've spent major time in in terms of the diversity of the music scene and so i think that's been one of the big things that's helped me 
make a living in music, um, and, and jazz in particular, but I, but I'd say really I've made a living as a musician kind of outside of genre, uh, which is the way I would have it. You know, I, when I was considering leaving New York and coming back to Nashville, I, I had a couple of conversations that stand out. One guy told me it was career suicide to, um, to leave New York, uh, for a jazz musician, I guess. And, uh, um, and then another guy said, well, you know, man, I'm just sure there's nobody down in Nashville that's really hidden like the cats in New York hit. And, uh, I, I, I think we play a little bit differently than, than, uh, what I most commonly ran into in the New York circles, you know? Um, but I certainly would prefer, <laughs> prefer what happens down here, you know? Um, I, I, one of the things I like about Nashville is, is that it has what I would consider, I mean, nowhere has every everything in terms of musical offerings, but uh, if there's a place that offers me a chance to do, you know, a, a country recording session on Thursday morning, a, a funk gig Thursday night, a reggae gig Friday night, and then a jazz quartet show uh, that might encompass all of those styles, uh, you know, on Saturday night, that Nashville is a town that allows me to do that. And if I want to play a Patsy Cline tune, then I'm going to play a, play a Patsy Cline tune. Um, for me, I, I think it it has given me a vision of jazz that the word I would use, which I'm sh- I'm sure there's plenty of, especially academics that would argue with me about it, but a, a more complete understanding of the genre. You know, when I'm looking on. Uh, YouTube or talking with greats like Sonny Rollins and he's playing Tennessee Waltz and Isn't She Lovely, which I think are, you know, tunes that your most common, you know, master student graduating from a jazz with a jazz degree would not be caught dead, quote unquote, playing those songs or like when I lived in New York and I remember uh, calling an Ellington tune at a jam session and the guys looked at me and said, man, that's corny, man. We're not, we're not trying to play that stuff, man. You know, um, you don't find that those attitudes down here for whatever, for a lot of reasons, you know? Um, and so I think Nashville just offered me a really awesome chance to be exposed, not just to a bunch of different genres, but also to jazz in a very complete way, as opposed to, you know, just the stuff that I wanted to learn. I'll put it that way. If I was one of those students, I see a lot of that, I think, and having spent six years teaching in a collegiate setting and then, um, seven years as a student in one, um, there's, I see a lot of this notion, it seems with younger jazz musicians that they already are pretty much artistically fully conceived as a freshman and going into college, which is not exactly, as I understand it, the path that a lot of the greats in this music took, you know? So for me, it's, you know, I've seen more examples looking at, you know, Coltrane and, and some of the, just a lot of the greats of apprenticeship and playing with great musicians that, um, I've been fortunate to play with guys, you know, from the point when I was 15, uh, most of the guys I played with were, if they weren't twice my age, they were definitely twice as good, you know? And so, um, so just being exposed in that way, I think it's a little bit more of a, more of the traditional way of learning jazz if there's a if if that way still exists on a major level but it's definitely the way I prefer but Nashville lets me play music the way I hear it and uh and offers me just a a, a fantastic uh pool of musicians to play music with you know
You know, I want to stay mostly in the present, but I do want to talk a little bit about the past. Uh, your name is Rasan, and you have a brother named Roland. Was there any chance you guys were going to become accountants? <laughs> um, no, no chance at all. Um, no, no chance at all. I, I think uh, and there's a, there's a great Rasan Roland Kirk album called One Man Twins. You know, that's like I I, I think it the name Roland was kind of in our family, and and I I should say my twin brothers. Uh, I think just one of the great trombonists of his generation, and I certainly hope more people figure that out. And I'm kind of sure they will, given what all he's got going on. But, um, yeah, there was there's there was no <laughs> there was no real possibility of accountants. I think we've, although sometimes I feel like with with handling the business into things, I kind of become feel, one anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. It's it's I think with some of the, especially now with with the Jazz Music City record label and. Uh, running all of that and kind of having my hands in, in the business side of things a little bit, a lot more actively than I guess I used to. Um, it's, there are days where I definitely feel more like an accountant than a, than a musician, you know, but, um, I, my question was kind of given in a joking way, but in a, but on the serious side, I mean, you come from a family that was really steeped in music. I mean, yes. so besides, besides the obvious thing with the names, yeah. I mean, you came from a background where, Absolutely. From generations ahead of you, people yeah. were really steeped in the music. Yeah, and that you know, I I think it starts for me. Uh, it it starts in earnest with my grandmother, who is a a great gospel and classical pianist. Um, and actually, when she was young, she would you know take the summer camps at Oberlin and things like that. Um, which is which just culturally is kind of mind blowing for the time that she was living in in this country, but. Um, just a very, very strong woman. I can remember when I was all the way up from all the way up until I was about 12 or 13 until her arthritis kind of started to get the best of her. But she'd put us, uh, put us in bed and we'd start to hear Ravel and, uh, WC coming from the piano. And right about the time we'd wake up in the morning, she'd be wrapping up her practice routine. But that those were the hours that she had to practice. So she would literally play through the night, you know. Um, I think it's kind of where we got our work ethic from and, and also just our flat out love of music in general, you know. Uh, but she also played at the church that we grew up going to. She played at that church for, I want to say 17, 18 years in addition to teaching in Metro public schools for 37 years. <laughs> so <laughs> she's kind of, she's an absolutely amazing woman, you know. Um, and I think we got a lot, uh, no matter what we, what field we had decided to go into, I think we, Roland and I certainly would both be indebted to her for however we'd be performing in it. Tell us her name so we have it on. Zephyr Selby. Her name Thank is you. Zephyr Selby. Yeah. And then, uh, my mom is a singer and has her voice, her singing voice is lower than my speaking voice. She's just, she has this range that's absolutely incredible. And so we grew up hearing her sing along with Sweet Honey and the Rock and things like that. And, um, and then just, uh, she was a, a, a fan of the traditional hymns and, um, 
and then jazz as well. And, and my granny was, it was and is a jazz fan from the heart, you know, uh, Don Bias is her guy. And, and, and no matter, I, I think no matter how well I play, I'll, I'll never match Don Bias and, or, <laughs> You know, it's kind of awesome, but, um, she used to sit with me these long hours when I was, I was trying to get subtoning together, this particular technique for getting the breathy Ben Webster sound. And when I got to college, I, you know, I started playing and people said, man, you sound like one of the guys in Ellington's band. And I owe it all to my granny because that was the sound that she knew a tenor was supposed to have. And so she would just sit with me for hours, just, you know, trying to, oh, you're almost there, you know, trying to get it, you know. So, uh, it, yeah, we, we were really fortunate. My older brother is Robert is a saxophone player as well. My dad plays bass now. He's for years, he would come to our shows and yeah, man, you guys sound great, but man, that bass player was something else. And he, finally he just, uh, we had a show at the, uh, now defunct IJE, uh, but at the IJE conference in New York and John Benitez was playing bass and my dad said, man, can I just pluck a string? And he plucked his string on Benitez's bass, and that was it. Like, he was hooked, and so he went out and bought a bass. And uh, so he's playing now. And um, But, it, yeah, very, very musical family, definitely. Tell me about uh, kind of the process of establishing yourself uh, as a musician in Nashville, where you know Nashville is all of the things you said it is, but it's also packed to the gills with talented players. It, it is, it absolutely is, and the one thing that I really that I, I really kind of took to heart early on was that there's no manual. <laughs> you know, um, everyone's path is different, and. For me, I, there was a point where I think not specifically I wanted a life in music. I, wa- I knew that I loved music and wanted to be involved with it. And if that meant, you know, working downtown at BMI or if that meant as a player. And I think I, over time, my goals kind of got a lot more specific with what I wanted to do with art, you know. Um, I was fortunate uh, to get a lot of uh, recognition and prestige while still in my high school years. Uh mostly from the the Naris Grammy in the schools program and Will and I both ended up different years doing the All-American High School Big Band but I think 
for us, we were kind of jazz standouts, more or less in a town that it was kind of a more seductive story because the town is not known necessarily for jazz talent. And so I, I had a fair amount of recognition and just at a very early age, maybe a little too much recognition. <laughs> um, and so from that point, we always would come home and, and just try to play as much as possible. And we always delight in playing together. And, you know, I think, you know, jazz kids named after a jazz icon, they're identical twins is normally enough to get people in the door and people curious to see it. And if it holds their attention, then, you know, they they keep coming back. And so that's really how it started. But for me, then, you know, moving forward seven years to finishing my master's and choosing to come back here, it's it's been something of a haul. You know, there was certainly a point where, you know, I whatever opportunity would come my way, I would try to make the most of it. And that's still, I think, to a certain degree, although I've gotten a little bit, I've been able to have the luxury of being a little bit more specific about the opportunities that I pursue. But certainly, you know, Nashville can keep you busy. Uh, sometimes that's a very good thing. and <laughs> Sometimes it's a challenging thing if you have things that you also want to do that maybe aren't connected to the busyness of, you know, paying the bills, keeping life moving forward, <laughs> you know. Um, but I about three years ago, I really found a group of guys that. I feel like I had been kind of searching for a band for a long time. And for me, the thing about jazz that always grabbed me was when I would hear these bands like Art Blakey and Jazz Messenger and uh, the great Miles Davis quintets or Coltrane's quartet, where for me, I, I think mostly because I, I grew up playing with family. I grew up in that setting where you, where you give a darn about the people that you're playing music with. And it's not just about playing, making sure your recital gets recorded right or things like that. Um, where you can, at least for me, I, I get a very tangible spiritual feeling that the people that are making the music together have a lot of strong emotion for each other and for the music, you know, and for that sort of environment. And so for me, finding those guys here, which, Again, you know, my friends in New York kind of told me it would never happen. <laughs> and, um, I, I got down here and a couple of guys, some of them I, I grew up actually playing with in high school. Uh, in the instance of Neil She Jackson's great drummer here, uh, we used to play on Tuesday nights at the jam session that was led by Jeff Coffin when he was still able to do a Tuesday night jam session <laughs> every week, uh, which is a beautiful time. It was, it was absolutely the perfect time for me. I would get my homework done and run down to the Isles Nest on Tuesday nights and my mom would sit there with me and take me and rolling down there. Um, but I started playing with Neoshi then. And so we've literally, I mean, we've been, now it's it's got to be 15 16 years that we've been playing music together you know um so there's that that kind of camaraderie and dialogue and interaction that feels like jazz to me in 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 a way that a lot of even in New York especially i think uh, a lot a lot of it never felt that way it didn't it, it wasn't it didn't have that group community thing that to me jazz uh it's the thing that sets jazz apart in a lot of ways from a lot of other different styles is that if the drummer does this, then the saxophone player does that. And not every style really works that way, you know? Um, so just finding that band and, uh, starting to kind of carve out, you know, school is funny because you learn so many different things and to do so many different things. And then you graduate and you're kind of left with this invisible question of 
who am I, you know, because a lot of times you've been in some instances guided pretty strongly, you know, uh, in particular directions or you went to a, a school that, you know, for me, most people would identify the school I went to for undergrad and artist diploma, Indiana University. Oh, it's a bebop school. That's I've, I've heard that. I don't, I firmly don't consider myself a bebop player, you know? Um, but, uh, but I think it's, you know, when you've gotten certain things in your background or you've not gotten certain things in your background, you have to go back in and fill in the blanks and, uh, you know, the, the thing they say about the real learning starting after school, for me, I, to a certain degree, that was certainly true because I kind of had to maybe start from scratch and say, well, if I'm only going to play one song, if I was going to walk out on stage anywhere and play one song, what would that song be? And I kind of had to get it that simple and then just kind of go back and add to that. And that's really where the, the music that's on the record came out of. Well, I want to, especially with that last thing that you said, kind of go back to something you said a few minutes ago, which is about this idea of getting recognition very young. And you do see that in a lot of players. I mean, magazines like Downbeat foster it too, where they have these, you know, rising stars and they find these kids in high school and, which is great. But, you know, when you're 15, you're at one level of emotional maturity and you've lived so much of your life. And when you're at 30, you're at a whole other place. And you've lived a whole other set yes. of life. Yes. And so I wonder if part of that going back, you know, to kind, you, kind of the first you, principles, is that influenced by just growing up and realizing, oh, there's more to this sure. than I, just what I learned in I, school. Absolutely. absolutely. And I, and I was, I should say, I was always looking beyond my training to a certain degree, you know? Um, I was, I was maybe the one jazz major that got up first thing in the morning and to, in order for me to get to my physics or sound class at 8 a.m., I had to put on James Brown. Just had, it was the only <laughs> thing that got my feet on the floor going, you know? And so I've always, um, you know, whether it was, I don't know, Marvin Gaye, uh, all the soul music stuff I kind of have a weakness for, you know? Um, but then like very, I'm, I'm an avid salsa dancer. Uh, you know, I, I kind of love it all, which, as in, you know, it's great in terms of being exposed to it for my artistic purposes, but maybe it's infinitely challenging as well because you, uh, you try to bring in all of these things that in some instances there's maybe not an example of it having been brought in before combined in a certain way that in your imagination you're going, I think this will work, you know? Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think, to to find yourself in jazz is self-discovery, you know, and a lot of times school settings don't always provide, you know, the opportunity. They give you the tools for it, but they don't necessarily uh, provide the, the room for it, you know. So Nashville has been absolutely great for me for that. And, I, and I've absolutely, you know, had the joy of playing with uh, and learning from, learning definitely from. Uh, many, many great musicians of all across genres, you know. Thank you. 
So tell me about uh, the band Everyday Magic and uh, who's in it. Uh, the on the now it, it features a uh, bassist Alana Rockland uh, has been playing most of the gigs. Um, drummer Neoshi Jackson, who I was mentioning before, I, I would pianist Jody Nardone, but Jody's actually a ridiculous pianist and vocalist, and, and people are going to figure that out. He's uh, he's about done with a record that's absolutely just going to floor people. Um, and on the record, it's guitarist Adam Agati, who has since relocated, and so it's been James DeSilva on guitar. Um, discovering those that bunch of folks here on the record, uh, it was Jerry Navarro on bass. And the neat thing about the, the band from the record is that we've all played together in different settings, but never all together before this band. Um, and I kind of had a hunch going in that uh, it was, I, for me, I just knew it was going to be scenic. I, there's so many really, really strong personalities in the band that, uh, for me, it's, it's a very uh, potent mix of musicianship, you know. Um, our first gig was actually a tribute to John Coltrane at the Frist Center downtown. And normally, those uh, the tributes that they have down there are more or less, I don't want to say reenactments, but very much this is what they did on the record. We're going to show you, demonstrate what that sounds like live. And I've never really had that approach to jazz at all. Um, I, for me, you know, I, I hear the way that John Coltrane reinvents body and soul. And when we start to play his music, I think that spirit of adventure and uh, imagination affects me that in a way that won't allow me to just use his arrangement you know um i don't think he would want me to do that but i you know in theory i'm not old enough or don't have enough degrees to, to make that <laughs> to make that statement yet but um uh thankfully music's not theory so you know we actually kind of went at that canon of work in a way that is very unique i think to the band uh, and and how we perform in our own personalities and try to uh, kind of adhere to the level of musicianship and the spirit of the music without maybe uh, just simply rehashing old old things, you know. And I think in that way we probably succeeded uh, in transmitting something of the essence. What I would say the essence of John Coltrane's artistic statements were uh, the message of it uh, in a way that was really satisfying for me as a musician and an artist and uh from that point forward it was like okay I, I i walked out of that day feeling like okay i found it this is this is the group so and so from there can you talk about developing the music that would then be on the album sure um i i, I remember i was sitting at the piano at my mom and grandma's place and just thinking okay i've got uh, if there was one thing that I would want to share with people through music, what would it what would it be? And when I was in New York, actually, I had the 
pleasure of attending this great church, Manhattan Grace Tabernacle. And there was, uh, there's something about from the very first time I walked in there, it was just uh, a vibe. And I actually ended up uh, becoming great friends with the pastor and his family there. And he's, you know, a classic Nurican, you know, uh, that, you know, will talk to you about seeing Tito Fuente and John Coltrane and the Yankees and, you know, how Mariano's doing and all of that. Um, and, you know, we'd always go out for, uh, you know, Tres Leches or something or find the Dominican spot after service on Sunday. And uh, just the, uh, there, was some, there was a warmth there that especially in the midst of Manhattan uh, was very appreciated and very different. Um, and so I just, you know, I started thinking about trying to find a way to express that through music. And uh, it's really kind of a simple tune. Um, but hopefully simple in the way that Horace Silver talks about meaningful simplicity, you know, um, called Manhattan Grace that uh, came out of me just kind of sitting and reflecting and trying to follow a melody through a, uh, through a different set of progressions, you know, uh, with the chords. And that's where Manhattan Grace came from. And from there, uh, you know, there's tunes that, you know, resemble some of my favorite writing by other composers, for sure. I think at this point, you know, I'm still developing uh, pretty, I'd, I'd hope pretty quickly, but only because I feel like I have a lot of room to develop, you know, uh, the music of Kenny Garrett, and Brian Blade, and uh, John Coltrane, Branford Marsalis, all of those things uh, influence me, and so I find myself certainly uh, at times writing things that bring out those influences, but for me, always are geared emotionally. Uh, with an emotional context for both for me and hopefully for the listener but I kind of think uh, jazz without an emotional context is uh, I, I, I struggle with it I put it that way you know and so uh, there's songs that uh, like Flood Song which certainly came out of the uh, it, was, it was just kind of a musical remembering of what it was like to go through the massive floods that we had here you know um, I was I was actually on the road working with a band and we turned on the TV at the hotel and they were showing what was going on in Asheville and we were we totally, I mean, we had no idea that that could happen or would happen, you know? And so uh, just the moments of trying to track everybody down and hear from family, which for a lot of us didn't happen for another day, you know? And we were out on the road and didn't get back and then couldn't get back into town because everything was shut down. So, um, so you know, I think while there's, you know, you can listen to Flood Song and certainly hear some musical influences. Uh, if you're, you know, a, a jazz buff, then uh, they're there. But I think for for the listener that would get it on the face of it in terms of the emotional context of it and understand that we are trying to render emotion through music, you know, um, that's that's where most of it came from, you know. So. And during this time that you were writing the music, was the was the band working pretty regularly and giving you a chance to kind of work this stuff out almost in, in workshop form? Oh, I wish. <laughs> um, it, it, it's kind of wild, man. Um, if there's a if there's a way that I had promised myself I would never do a record, that's the way we did this record. <laughs> um, we learned all the material in the studio. Wow. Uh, it it's yeah. I, I listened to the first track and. I realized that I was literally throwing it in front of musicians and at a level that, um, I, and again, I think because Nashville has this, 
amazing studio scene as well. There's musicians develop a very unique skill set here because they're going to be expected to, you know, you're going to put something that's at times pretty difficult in front of somebody and say, okay, roll tape, we're in the red, <laughs> you know? And so uh, it's, we literally learn the music in the studio uh, and, you know, the way that you're describing it, you know, get together, play some regular gigs. Uh, I, I, the first time we played this music, uh, and not even all of it, was kind of in the middle of the recording process. Uh, we had two days in the studio and then a gig that night at the National Jazz Workshop and then the final day in the studio. And even on the gig, we were kind of laughing to ourselves because we, we'd figure things out. We figured some things out on the gig. And I remember Neoshi looking at me and going, Oh, that's how it goes. I guess we got to go re-record that, you know? Um, and so I, you know, I would, yeah, I would never recommend <laughs> doing a record that way. But I think in this town, you have that rare opportunity where I could look at my schedule and we got everybody's schedule and I just said, okay, everything will be, you know, I, I trust these guys in, in their training and musicianship, uh, so much that, you know, looking back on it and certainly if when I've had to have a sub in the band for whatever reason, um, you know, and, and I'm watching, you know, a sub just kind of look at some of the charts and go, really? Like, this, you know, <laughs> I've had this for three days and, uh, thinking about how, how we actually pulled that record off is kind of wild, you know? So, uh, but no, we, we, we had no, uh, a lot of it I had not even heard. A lot of it I had not heard before, you know, except for in my imagination. You sure. Know? So I think the good thing was that I knew the guys I was dealing with. And so I was able to, be really sharp with my imagination, maybe more so than if I, um, and I always kind of, I try to rely on myself as a communicator in those situations to try to, you know, play point guard role a little bit and see the floor and <laughs> hope that we're going to be able to score together. You know? <laughs> so. so how has the van developed since then? I mean, if you look back from those early days to now, what's the evolution? That- there, I think there's, there's definitely, that record might be a little more, traditional even than we are which is not really a traditional record but i think certainly uh we've brought in a lot more use of the electric bass um i i i continue to in a town with you know alana rockland adam needy victor wooden the electric bass just continues to get reinvented for me every time i hear one of those players and so um there's been a lot more writing for that and a lot more embracing of of contemporary and modern rhythms and so we've we filled out the book a little bit um i've i've kind of got an eye towards some of the next recordings that we might make and the arrangements that we did for that coltrane show are still there and kind of floating around so we may go back in and do a coltrane record at some point um but i think more than that we it it's we're, I mean, I don't know. I, I think we're still very, it's not that we haven't scratched the surface yet, but I think we're, we're definitely still finding where we sit. You know, I think there's a level of arrangement that's, that's starting to happen, uh, that creates a pretty unique, what I would hope to be a pretty unique sound. You know, I, I've always kind of wanted a band, uh, you know, I, I, when you hear, some of those great groups or even uh not just with traditional jazz, even Weather Report or the Yellow Jackets, I think are a great example of as soon as a Yellow Jackets tune comes on, you know, it's the Yellow Jackets. It doesn't, you know, Bob Minster hasn't shown up yet and you already know this is the Yellow Jackets thing. And I think to a certain degree that uh creating that even, you know, that sort of sound uh and having that 
signature level of a presentation of melody and rhythm uh is is very attractive that said i think we're kind of as open-ended as we've ever been you know um most recently we had a show where i decided it would, it would be fun to feature rhythms from around the world and so for the our last week it was kind of two half and half sets and for the last 90 minutes we literally jumped country to country to country to country you know and uh started with like a reggae dance hall version of my funny valentine into uh you know contigo and la distancia this great bolero um into uh, a very african three four you know polyrhythmic elvenish thing um over a, a tune by this great composer michael whitaker that lives here in town so you know I, for me this the thing getting lost in music and that sense of adventure and the, the ability of a drummer to play something and trigger you know that would make you think of the continent of africa the fact that you can do that with a, with a drum and you haven't actually moved someone physically closer to the continent those are the things that really kind of ignite my passion for music and um the more we can we can follow that sense of adventure i think that's wherever that is leading that's where we'll go that draws on other cultures you also uh, play in the band El Movimiento uh, yes. tell me about that band yeah yeah that uh, that that band's been an absolute joy when I uh, right when I moved back to town I started working with a great percussionist composer producer arranger uh, Giovanni Rodriguez uh, who plays congas and uh, kind of a, a wide range of percussion instruments in that band and his He's an absolute encyclopedia. I think, you know, for me, I've always been one of those musicians that I could spend time with the horn out a little bit easier than I could just spend a whole day just listening to records. He's one of those guys that if you mention a record, he's like, oh, yeah, man. And then, you know, this cat played piano on it. And this, yeah, it was in June of 1938. And, you know, he's just one of those, he has one of those music brains, you know. Um, and so, you know, for, it was a really good foil, I guess is the best way, um, for, I, I think a good partnership working together. And then, 
about three years ago, great trumpeter Emer Santiago moved to town, and we actually kind of crossed over. I was doing a master class at Tennessee State University that he came uh, across the street and caught. And really, as soon as we met, I, it's weird as an identical twin to meet somebody that's not a member of your family that you feel like is absolutely you. But Emer and I, from day one, we've, I, it's it's almost eerie how similar uh <laughs> how similar we we think and communicate and um and and regard the music and uh and musical expression and education and we just have so many levels of connection and so we at that point uh Emer and I were both living in Hermitage and he kind of found a, a little coffee house spot down there uh called Javanet Cafe that's no longer there and um they said, you guys want to play music? Just, you know, as long as people come in the door, uh, do whatever you want, which normally in Nashville, uh, jazz presentations are very, uh, I don't want to say constricted, but they're, they're, it, you see a lot of jazz gigs pop up where people are there to have dinner and hear some jazz. And it's not, uh, it's, it's not the sort of environment that you would bring a Kenny Garrett in or a Michael Brecker in, you know. And I think on, on a lot of levels, hopefully with the record label and everything, we're trying to change that. Um, but that, that was one of those rare instances where they said, carte blanche, do whatever you want to do. And we started basically getting a very young collection of musicians together and just saying, we, I mean, in, in those early days, we played everything from, uh, instrumental and sometimes not even instrumental. So, uh, hip hop with, with rappers and MCs coming in. And then the next tune would be, a you know, a uh, Tito Puente tune. And I mean, it was, it was kind of all over the map, you know, but it kind of caught on. Uh, and I think the, the freshness, I guess, or it was kind of a, a breath of fresh air for what Nashville's jazz scene normally was doing at the time. And we moved into town, uh, after a brief break there and started playing at the Frothy Monkey, um, down near Hillsborough Village. And we played there weekly for what had to be seven, eight months. Every Tuesday night, we played two hours straight. And one of those nights, they said, well, you know, we finished one night and I, I think I turned to Giovanni and said, okay, let me make the set list for next week. I really want to make the set list. And when we got there the next week, it was all Latin jazz stuff, which for me uh, is some of my, I think the dancer in me absolutely goes crazy for. And just, I think uh, with Giovanni's expertise as a Latin jazz percussionist, it's for me, that's the stuff that in listening to the band, that's the stuff that was making me most excited to want to grab my horn and, and play. And so we came in that night. It was all Latin jazz. And I think we felt it was a little bit more focused of a performance because of the, that thing. Uh, but then the audience response too, uh, was kind of one of those, we can't believe we're hearing this in Nashville. And from that night, we've kind of been a Latin jazz world music band that I not, not so much limited to traditional Latin jazz by any stretch. I think I recently, kind of push the boundaries of the genre quite a bit and then bring in some world music rhythms that are not uh, geographically a part of the Latin jazz collection of rhythms, but uh, things that appeal to us or seem appropriate for the band to play off of. Um, and that band's been an absolute joy. It's a pretty big group. It's a septet. 
and uh, we we have a good time. We've been fortunate enough to to play on a number of the festivals here, and then also to hit the road and play. Yeah, uh, I think most recently at uh, the Jazz Kitchen up in Indianapolis, we got to get out there and play in Indianapolis, which is great. It's always fun to go on the road, especially to go on the road with dear, dear friends, you know. Finally, as you as you look ahead over the next few years, are there some things you're you're working towards, or some things you hope, some goals, milestones you hope to achieve? Absolutely, absolutely. I think I, the with the release of Everyday Magic, we kicked off this record label, Jazz Music City, that is basically trying to address a, a gap in jazz performance here in town. You know, you go down in the Symphony Center and you see Herbie Hancock or Esperanza Spalding, and you're gonna get. Uh, 600 or so people there even on a Monday or Tuesday night to see jazz at that level and a lot of them don't know that uh, we have comparable jazz artists living here in town because of the opportunities to perform on those stages um, or on comparable stages or to present their music in that way just don't exist yet we don't have a, a Village Vanguard or a Blue Note um, to to put the music on display and the musicians on display on a, in a in a way that I feel like uh, really honors their gifts and and their hard work over the years to get to that point. And so, with the uh, Jazz Music City record label, it's a, it's actually a record label slash concert production company, and uh, we're we're basically trying to create a broader understanding and appreciation of some of the great jazz talent that exists here in Nashville. Um, so, you know, more albums coming out, uh, more, uh, but but also just a greater community involvement in supporting the jazz scene, uh, both amongst musicians and just fans. Um, I'm certainly working hard at this point uh, on a, the, the best way to describe it is a hip-hop brass band that uh, Roland and I, when Roland moved back uh, from New York, we'd, we've always loved like the brass band sound, and I think having three horn players in the family, we kind of gravitate pretty quick to it. But I, you know, I always kind of wanted to, I, it's hard for me to kind of redo 
things that have already been done and so i try to find a way that really makes me passionate about pursuing it and we uh on april 2nd of this year we had a big it was our birthday and so our birthday party was kind of the coming out party for that band the megaphones which is a an eight-piece brass band but it's really like a hip-hop brass band with uh certainly a strong rap element uh, all original songs that are uh a little bit formatted more in a pop or radio friendly format you know but certainly feature the brass band sound and tons of improvisation as well kind of mixing things up that way um then uh just continuing to work i've I've been doing more producing and arranging uh you know i I think the notion of being a jazz producer in nashville tennessee uh when i first started thinking about it it sounded absolutely hilarious but it's actually found me uh found me quicker than i thought it would you know and so now i'm you know in the next months i'll be mr santiago is actually going to be recording a record uh of his own work uh that it's not necessarily an El Movimiento album, but just as this quartet, you know, with additional things is needed. And so I'll be producing his album uh, next month. And so there's actually a lot going on. You know, I think it, it I, I feel very fortunate at 32. I feel like I'm kind of waist deep doing what I want to be doing, which is really a blessing and a half, you know. Um, but yeah, more, more music and more, uh, hopefully just a greater appreciation here in this city and then hopefully taking it ideally it'd be great to see like the roster of a jazz music city hit the road and go to atlanta or go to chicago um where we take you know 10 musicians that that to me that would be an absolutely great thing if we can change the greater perception so that uh you know i what what was said in the in the downbeat uh, review that Nashville has a scene that's worthy of our attention. Don't sleep on it. Uh, if we can kind of continue to wake people up, <laughs> then I'll be a very happy guy. So. My guest is Rasan Barber. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, man. It's been a joy.
That's music from Rasan Barber and his album Everyday Magic. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi. Please do become a member or support the tour. You can do the former at thejazzsession.com slash join and the latter at thejazzsession.com slash tour. Again, I need places to stay, people to interview, and places to read poetry from Detroit West. And that pretty much includes the rest of the country. So if you're anywhere west of Detroit, feel free to drop me a line at jason at thejazzsession.com. Many of you already have. Thank you so much. I've got a bunch of places. Great uh, places booked to stay and i'm really really excited to get out there and continue the tour and that's it for this show please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the jazz session Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.